Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And in this particular episode, we'll be continuing our examination of We Can Build You. Uh, we Can Build You was written in, or published in 1972, although it was written back in the early 60s, and it was, was kept in a, a shoebox, I presume, until uh, Philip K. Dick needed something uh, to, to publish. Um, his publication rate really slows down after 1970. Uh, Our Friends from Full Oaks 8 was published in 1970. Uh, the story he wrote that, I, that we talked about last time, or, or before we started looking at We Can Build You, Cadbury, The Beaver Lack, wasn't published in his lifetime. And uh, after this is published, he doesn't actually publish his next book until 1974, uh, Full My Tears, The Policeman Said. So there's a large gap in his publication. Um, after 1970, it'll pick up again in the late in the late uh, 70s and early 80s, the last years of his of his life. So um, this presumably he wanted something published, and he had this old book. Um, really, it's a it's a mainstream novel uh, with some very light science fiction elements. It's set in the contemporary era. It's set only 20 years in the future. Um, it's the world of the characters is very much our world with a few differences. One is the development of the simulacrum. Another is beginning of exploration and settlement on other planets. And then um, the kind of the growth of mental illness. I think Dick here was projecting um, kind of a, or imagining a, a projected growth of mental illness and diagnosis to such a point that it becomes a crisis level. And so this novel, it kind of tricks you, to be honest. If, if you look at the cover, it's We Can Build You. It seems to be a book about androids. Uh, if you read the back, it's all about um, androids. Um, the only mention here of mental illness is uh, a, a kind of somewhat removed mentioning of Pris. I don't even think Pris is mentioned on the back cover. This is the vintage edition, by the way, but Pris is even mentioned just... Uh, just talked about as a woman Lewis loves, a woman Louis loves, a borderline psychopath. So uh, actually, this is a novel that's mostly about mental illness, though. And in fact, we got a first-person narration. And I guess um, when I was talking about it in the last episode, I didn't make this really clear. Dick normally doesn't write in first-person narratives. He, he normally writes in third person. Uh, his mainstream novels are more likely to be first person, as is Confessions of a Crap Artist. What's special about this is, is this narrator's not, not reliable. Um, in fact, there's probably a lot we can doubt. I mean, maybe it's possible to doubt the whole story, and that's up to you. I mean, by the end, our character is confined in a, in a mental ward and having active delusions. So uh, he's honest about it at that point as a narrator, but you know, it doesn't mean that everything that happens earlier in the novel is, is real. So, see, so basically, in the first few chapters, we, we're just introduced to this guy, Louis Rosen's company, and he has this business partner, Maury Rock, and they make pianos, but they're going to switch their business to making simulacrum, and they have different schemes of how to make this profitable, but their prototype is a Stanton, uh, Edwin Stanton, former Secretary of State of the United States during Lincoln's administration. 
he's the simulacrum, and then they work make a Lincoln one. So they got a Lincoln and a Stanton simulacrum. There's a Civil War kind of fetish that these characters have. Um, and we're also then introduced to Pris, who's just who is more his daughter, who's been just released from a mental institution. And she's still apparently mentally ill, but she's kind of on an outpatient. And she's the one who actually designed the Lincoln simulacrum. So she's quite brilliant, but she's got all these serious uh, mental issues. And then really much of what happens in this part of the novel is Louis finds out he's, a, he's in love with her. But then there's the ongoing kind of question of how do we make a profit from this simulacrum thing we developed. Now in chapter five where we left off, he, he kind of goes into Pris's doctor's office and, and lies to him about him being a simulacrum. When he leaves the, the conversation though, he starts to think, well, maybe there's something to this. And he plays with the idea. And so he goes to talk to the Stanton simulacrum, asking him essentially, how do you know you're real? Or why do you think you're real when all evidence suggests you're not? He asks him directly a question. Doesn't it seem odd that you seem that although you were born in 1800, you're still alive in 1882? Doesn't it seem odd for you to be shut off every now and then? And what about your being made out of transistors and relays? You didn't used to because in 1800, they didn't have transistors and relays. And then the Stanton simulacrum kind of tries to justify his experience based on subjectivity. He kind of gives the Descartes thesis, essentially, although he's kind of nebulous about it. Essentially, it's like I have consciousness, so um, my existence is something I have to reckon with. And that's a kind of an interesting idea here with the creation of these simulacrums, is that if you create someone who has the memories of someone else, the personality, the experiences, the memory of the experiences of that person, and you turn them on, you turn on the robot version of them, are you resurrecting that life form? Are you essentially giving it a second life? Um, and then really, what is, what's, what makes us human is, is the question Dick had. When he wrote this, I think he didn't really have this idea of empathy as the core human experience yet. So he's, he's still a little bit more ambiguous. And a lot of his stories from the 50s and 60s, especially the 50s, have this idea of, of the robot thinking it's a human, right? And, and not really being able to identify the difference. And there's no easy, there's no uh, empathy test that can be given to, to prove uh, someone is, is a simulacrum or not at this point. So this opens up into a philosophical conversation with the Stanton bot. Um, and he's... He goes, he goes away from Stanton then, and he, he decides he's going to study Stanton. He doesn't know much about him, right? Like most people. We know Lincoln. We know Grant. Maybe Jeff Davis, if we're a Southerner, we maybe know about more about him. But most of us don't know that much about Stanton. So he goes and researches him, and he, he learns about the Stanton-Lincoln feud. And he finds it interesting that Pris has kind of introduced two characters who will be in conflict with one another. Um, now, he goes back to Stanton to talk about what he's learned about Stanton and, and kind of go back to this question of how does he know he's real. And that actually, this conversation then verges into a conversation about the nature of Pris. Now, the, the importance of Pris in this story is that she is so robotic. She's so cruel. She's so indifferent to the emotions of others. She plays with people. Now, she, she has people who love her. Her father loves her. Louis ends up loving her and, and caring for her. But... She really is brutal in, in how she accepts or, or rejects that, that love. She's described essentially as a schizoid, as well as having other mental, um, mental problems. And Stanton, interestingly, you know, who's, who's you know, spent a lot of time with Pris, um, goes into this long, again, philosophical conversation about the nature of Pris. 
and basically arguing that Pris spends, is too much a follower of the head and not, not the heart. She's, she's essentially too robotic, is what Stan says. And, and it's really fascinating that you would have a robot saying someone is too cerebral, you know, when, when a robot would essentially be a computer. Um, and the point here is Stanton gives an original thought. He, he actually thinks something original. He seems to have subjectivity. It's not just programmed into him. I mean, it, it'd be, you know, where did this idea come from? It must have come originally from Stanton's mind. So these, these simulacrum minds are creative. That's, that's the lesson here that Louis gets. Uh, the question here is, is Stanton human or not? Of course, um, does, does that capacity of subjectivity, does that capacity to, to create an original thought lead one to being a true human? Um, now, Stanton wants to, to meet Barrows. Now, previously, Barrows is like the rich guy in the background of the story. He wants to, they want to sell the simulacrum to Barrows, Barrows maybe, to, for whatever reason. They're hoping, you know, they're a small company and they want to maybe latch themselves to a big company to get rich. And Barrows originally wasn't interested in the Stanton when they called him and kind of issued, you know, said, we have this. So Stanton says he's going to go and meet Barrows. And, and he kind of leaves the story for a while because he actually like, gets on a bus. And, you know, it's, like, it's funny. I, I suppose he's dressed like a 19th century um, Stanton, but he gets on a bus, goes over to Seattle to meet Barrows and, and talk with him and show himself in person what he's capable of and what he is. So it's, it's really funny. I mean, Dick's having a lot of fun with these, with these characters, you know. They have having Lincoln as your lawyer and, and, and having him deal with patent law and something. It's... it's um, you know, putting these historical figures in these preposterous circumstances is something uh, Dick is enjoying doing on this story. So that's chapter six. Um, in chapter seven, Louis goes to have a discussion with Pris about the impact of, of her achievements. Essentially, you know, what has she created with these simulacrums and, and, and her design? She's really created something outstanding. And she, he wants to know if she's fully aware of how kind of historical or transformative her innovations are. And, and Louis asked her directly, you know, about what is the nature of their life, right? And, and Pris seems to be aware that they're, they're essentially engaged in some form of, of resurrection, even saying she'll, you know, someday we might die and be woken up again. And anyone who, who's interested in this idea that we're in a, in a simulation, right? I know this theory has been bounced all around a lot and you can find articles about this on the internet, you know, the, you know, just the, the likelihood of us being a simulation may actually be higher than the likelihood that we're in a real world, right? Because the real world they're going to be one of, right? But in a, that real world, if it reaches a certain technological advancement, could have thousands and thousands of simulations, right? Running on everyone's like personal computer, millions perhaps of simulations. So it's more likely, and that's theory, that would be part of a simulation. And in which case, we're, we wake up with a, with a history, a, a past, you know, but actually we're just kind of playing through a, a false reality, right, in the Matrix. Um, and I know that idea is out there. I don't know if we should take it too seriously, but it, this passage, you know, gives some thoughts about this. And, and, and of course, it's in the framework of creating a simulacrum with a past and a, and a bit of self-consciousness. Um, now, Pris here gives her commentary on the world, though, and, and I'm just going to read it because it's so fascinating and, and I'll let you think about it. She, she says that we're cruel to awaken these life forms in this, in this world. Quote, I'll tell you something. 
I know a way to get rid of those awful yellow jackets that sting everyone. You don't take any risk, and it doesn't cost you anything. All you need is a bucket of sand. You wait until night so the yellow jackets are all down below in their nest to sleep. Then you show up in their holes and you pour a bucket of sand over it, and the sand forms a mound. Now listen, you think the sand suffocates them, but that's not quite like that. Here's what happens. The next morning, the yellow jackets wake up and find their entrance blocked with sand, and they start burrowing up into the sand to clear it away, but they have no place to carry it except to the other parts of the nest. So they create a bucket brigade, and they carry their sand grain by grain to the back of the nest. But as they take the sand from the entrance, more falls in its place. Isn't it awful? What they do is they gradually fill up their own nest with sand. They do it themselves. The harder they work to clear the entrance, the faster it happens and they suffocate. It's like an oriental torture, isn't it? When I heard about this, Louis, I said to myself, I wish I was dead. I don't want to live in a world where such a thing can be. Um, and that's, that's her vision of the world as it is. Um, and this then branches into a conversation about the, the kind of the proliferation of psychoses and mental illness among, among people. And essentially the, the thesis that, that Pris offers up is that the world is what it is and psychoses is in a response, a human response to the world as it really is. Which again, I think feeds into my my theory that I offered up last time in that Dick is a believer in the critics of psychotherapy of the 1960s and the critics of institutions like the asylum who were saying that mental illness is really not an individual problem but a collective problem. It's, a, it's not that one person doesn't fit in, it's that the world is sick. And mental illness is in a, an individualized re response to a sick society. Now to reinforce her idea that that the world is basically cruel um, and, and pointless. She, she gives another little little story. Oh no, this is actually, um, no, this is Louis' story, but what's important is Pris's interpretation of the story. So Pris tells the story of the wasps. Louis says this, he says, one day I was starting into the post office in the town down in California, and there were some bird's nests up in the eaves of the buildings. And a young bird had flown and dropped out and was sitting on the pavement. And its parents were flying around anxiously. I walked up to it with the idea of picking it up and putting it in the nest. As if I could reach, if I could reach the nest. Do you know what it did when I came near? It opened its mouth, expecting that I would feed it. And Pris just sort of looks at him, and he says, "See, it shows that it had known only life forms which fed and protected it. And when it saw me, it thought it didn't need yeah, that I didn't look like any living thing it ever assumed, but it would, that I would feed it." And Pris says, "What does this mean to you?" And he says, "It shows that benevolence and kindness, and mutual love and self assistance in nature." Um, Exist so basically it's it's an argument for solidarity in in Lewis's view But Pris just throws us out the window immediately So here Lewis is making a heartfelt kind of reflection on, on existence to counter Pris's cold view of, of, of life and Pris just says no, it's ignorance that on the birds because the bird was stupid to think that you would you would feed it right it, you know, it's just uh, It's nothing beyond that. There's no you shouldn't go kind of make an argument about the benevolence of, of existence based on this, uh, what's essentially a, a, an instinct. So um, a lot of Pris's conversations in the first half of the novel with Louis are, are this very bleak reflection of, of humanity, unfortunately. So anyways, after this conversation, which of course is very fascinating, and, and read through, you should read through it, he goes to, they go back to the office and they witness the birth of the Lincoln simulation, uh, simulacrum. 
It's actually presented a bit like a birth, um, but it's kind of a botched birth because the Lincoln simulacrum, when it starts speaking, it speaks backwards. Uh, it's like the 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 wiring was was inverted or something. So it's a little humorous, but um, that's that's the botched birth of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, so in chapter eight, it's you know it, it's it's during the several days that it took to rewire the Lincoln simulacrum. Now, one thing you notice in this novel, and and I think if you read it a couple times, you you start to realize that maybe Louis not really a reliable narrator. Like we think he's crucial to the business, and and we're told that by several characters, but he doesn't actually do too much for the business itself. Uh, the engineer is this guy named Bob Mundy. Pris does a lot of the designing. Uh, um, Murray Murray Rock seems to be in on the actual construction of the simulacrum too. He comes up with all the ideas. Louis is just there and and hanging out. Um, he's he's actually kind of useless, and that's we're reminded of that in this chapter when they're trying to fix this Lincoln simulacrum. He just like drives around aimlessly around the country. Uh, they're up in like Ontario, and they he spends a lot of time like in Seattle and Oregon, uh, California. And he's just driving around the West, you know, for a couple days while. Um, this is happening, claiming a desire to feel alive. So he just drives around for a while, and then he gets back to Ontario after a few days when the Lincoln simulacrum is, is up and running, and he faces it, and he's so shocked, he's so amazed at what he sees that he actually faints. He, he just falls over, um, you know, from the effect that the Lincoln simulacrum has on him. So, again, I don't know if this is because there's something mentally wrong with, with, with Louis, or if it's because he's uh, really the Lincoln simulacrum is that convincing. It, apparently it is. Uh, people don't question whether it's a robot or not when they see him. But he's so shocked by the faints. Now, he gets like his face bashed up a bit, his lip bashed up. So Pris takes Louis to the doctor. And so we get another scene of Louis and Pris together alone. This time they're driving to the doctor's. And really, the discussion here is Pris's depression. She's feeling intense depression and aimlessness after, after, after the Lincoln simulacrum. Now, something Dick does a lot when he looks at mental illness is he, he kind of I don't know if this is what the conventions of the time and how the, the diagnostic manual was in the '60s. It'd be interesting to look at the 1960s diagnostic manuals for mental illness, compare it with now. Right? But it seems that like a lot of his characters are diagnosed one way, but they have characteristics of, of things that I, like other personality disorders, right? Like um, a character might be called like a schizoid or schizophrenic, but they seem to have borderline tendencies. Here we see Pris maybe having a bit of like a bipolar, actually, um, personality disorder where she's very creative when she's working on the Lincoln simulacrum. But when it's done, she kind of feels aimless and, and, and kind of moves into a depressive state. So I don't know, um, but she. This chapter really focuses on Pris's her overall aimlessness. Now Pris does something interesting where in this conversation because mostly what um, Louis suggests to her is, is just be more of a kid and and you're still young and there's no reason to take life so seriously yet. And but she makes. Um, the comment that she was trained in this asylum that she stayed in, in Kansas City. So it's important that's in Kansas City later on, but uh, that's where she was kept. And she was taught to only react if it was in her interest to do it. So she was taught self-interest, survival, essentially, while she was in the clinic. And therefore, she didn't... Uh, her, in fact, instead of making her better, if anything, her stay at the clinic 
corrupted her emotional state or her behavioral, how she behaves in response to her, her emotions. And I don't know if that's the state's agenda here in these clinics is to make people more banal or, or more just reactive out of self-interest rather than really having fully lived emotional experiences. Um, but, you know, whatever you want to say, Pris seems to come out of this clinic a, a, a cripple, uh, emotionally crippled. Maybe she came in crippled and she just wasn't healed, but she's, she's not normal here. Um, so they, they go to the doctor and there's really not much. He just kind of cleans them up and, they, and then they go back together. And during the drive back, she can, he confesses that he has, has love for, for Pris. Wait, actually, first they stop at a bar with, with Pris. And while he's there, he confesses his love for her. And he can't quite differentiate his feelings of love for her from his, her, her personal history, which is really an odd thing. And, and again, if, if you're looking for clues that Louis is not altogether there, uh, this is one of them. Quote, you've had a fascinating history. Schizoid by 10, compulsive, obsessive, neurotic by 13, full-blown schizophrenic by 17, and ward of the federal government. Now halfway cured and back among human beings again. But still, to, I'll tell you the truth. I'm in love with you. And then he amends his statement saying, I could be in love with you. Um, now, her response to this is essentially uh, a reactive, her, her, her general way of responding to this kind of thing is to insult the other, to hurt them, to attack them where they're weakest. In the case of Louis, she attacks his masculinity, him being, a, you know, I think he's in his mid-30s, unmarried. Um, now, it seems he's a bit of a player. There's suggestions in the novel that he is. We don't really see him do much uh, in regards to that, but there's a few statements that Murray makes uh, about that. Um, and he even defends himself from Pris, saying, you know, I, I've, I know girls. Don't worry. He'll help me there. But still, Pris seems to want to attack him in, in regards to his masculinity. And she very powerfully actually kind of first attacks his masculinity and then turns around and says, look what I've created. Look what me and like Bundy have created. We've created the Stanton and the Lincoln. We've given birth to something, right? Um, and then she kind of very flirtatiously says, Louis, do you want to join me in bringing something to life? Uh, which, of course, has a, a, a little bit of sexual torment. She's adding on to her attack on his masculinity. So that's, um, that's, that's the nature of, of Pris. That's who she is. Um, but... Um, after that conversation at the bar, they return to Massa, they return to the company, and now we have the success, we, we see the success of Lincoln on full display. And so with the success of the Lincoln, they actually display him and show him off to see how people respond, and this response is so successful that they decide maybe we should reach out to Barrows again. Um, and now Louis is able to have a normal conversation with Lincoln without collapsing and falling apart. And we see that Lincoln immediately has a deep concern for Louis' well-being, which is something Pris does not. So again, we're reminded that uh, what Dick's trying to do in this novel is give us the psychopathic human, the schizoid human who doesn't have emotional, uh, an emotional, a way of react, responding to the world emotionally and, and responding to people's emotions in a productive way. Uh, she's just cruel. With a robot, a, a clear robot that that seems capable of, of kindness and, and concern for other people's well-being. Okay, so in chapter nine, we get our, our first formal meeting between Barrows' team and, and the Rosen team. And Barrows comes with his lawyer. Uh, what's his lawyer's name? 
I didn't think it was important, so I didn't write it down. But when you get later in the novel, these characters come back. So um, the lawyer's name is Mr. Blunk, and then his secretary is Mrs. Nild. And so he's got a little bit of an entourage there. Um, and so they do this meeting with, with Barrows. I, I think they come. They come to Ontario to, to see him. And now Pris and Barrows have a really odd relationship. She, she makes herself up, which is something that she doesn't typically do, it seems. She, she's uh, more restrained when she's with the Rosens and with her father. But she makes herself up. She's fascinated with this Barrows. She's obsessed with him, actually. And, and she kind of shows that off. She's trying to impress him sexually uh, by looking, looking all pretty. And she actually acts a little bit different when she's around Barrows. Um, now, Barrows has praise for their accomplishments, having, you know, seen the success of these, these simulacrum. And, and it turns out he's already met the, the Stanton. The Stanton has already come by to, to see him. Um, Barrows meets the Lincoln. And, and then they got this conversation about equality, about slavery and simulacrums. And, and it goes on for about five, six pages. So it's, it seems to be rather important. It, it doesn't cover much of the later half of the novel. This isn't a novel about the ethics of enslaving simulacrum. Uh, maybe the first half, you think that's a novel you're going to get. It's a little bit like Ubik in that way, maybe, where you know you read the first half of Ubik, you think you have a novel about post-humans and industrial espionage, and really you have one about you know half-life and, and shifting the shifting realities of half-life. An entropy. Uh, here, you might think you're getting a straight-up novel about is it ethical to enslave a, a simulacrum that has subjectivity to buy and sell them to to you know deal with them in the marketplace like you would any other commodity, but in fact, there's something. It's, it's a novel about mental illness mostly, um, but it is an interesting conversation, to, and it, it's fun to see Lincoln give a dissertation on equality and on slavery and on justice and it kind of coming back around to the question of enslaving these these sims and essentially buying them right using them like commodities now barrows comes up with the idea that or he reinforces the idea that actually the rosen corporation had earlier the rosen company had earlier which was let's refight the civil war he wants to add to it though he wants to go a little bit farther than what uh Rosen and, and, and Rock had originally wanted, and that, that was to actually not make it kind of a reenactment of the Civil War, which is, which is how it was originally thought of, um, but actually not just, and not just a catharsis, catharsis for a population that needs war, but actually add to it a way to make money through side betting and add, add basically a kind of, kind of commercial aspect to it. So people could bet on the, the outcome of the Civil War, and it could be refought every few years. As a big thing, like the World Cup or the Olympics or something. Um, that's one idea they have. Um, but really, when you tie this back up to this idea of enslaving these simulacrums, I, I know there's this idea that there's good simulacrums like the Lincoln and Stanton, and they'll be like easy peasy ones, like junk ones for the soldiers. But still, will they also have subjectivity? Will they be, you know, will they have complex internal experiences like apparently the Stanton and Lincoln do? That's, that's not really dealt with, but certainly it's a troubling aspect of this if you're going to send them to, to kill each other for no reason. Um, Barrows also has the idea of using them for colonization. And, and this, I think, is a way this novel ties into Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Because we know in that novel, the, the androids are used directly for, for, um, 
for settlement, right? They're used to essentially, if you, if you emigrate from Earth, you get a free robot that can be your servant or whatever. And even if you want to recreate Antebellum South, you can do that. And, and those are t- definitely slaves. That, that question, can you enslave a simulacrum, has been resolved in that novel, um, even if it's not really resolved here. So the idea here is to use these uh, Rosen simulacrum to, to help with emigration, to help with terraforming these planets and, and to give people companions and neighbors. And we, of course, see this in even Martian Time Slip, where there's this idea of, of whole neighborhoods that are all simulacrums, so settlers won't feel lonely, right? They'll at least have neighbors. Um, but there is a conversation here also about the fakeness of, of Barrow's empire, which is kind of thrown in here. Now, it's, it's, it's Rosen. Rosen doesn't like Barrows, and he doesn't like him from the beginning to the end of the story. And we'll see that there's, re- there's really good reasons for why he, he hates him so much. But he seems not to believe that... He thinks that Barrows' empire is kind of a facade. Quote, I gaped at Barrows, not knowing whether to believe him. Was this serious? Simulacrum posing as human colonist, living on the moon in order to create an illusion of prosperity? Man, women, and child simulacrum in little living rooms, eating phony dinners, going to phony bathrooms? It was horrible. It was, in a way, of bailing this. It was a, a way of bailing this man out of the troubles he had run into. Did we want to hang our fortunes and lives onto that? End quote. So uh, Louis Rosen essentially accuses the Barrows of having a fake, fake empire. And that is that's chapter nine, and that takes us to the halfway point in in this novel. Um, in the next episode, we'll look at chapters ten through ten through fourteen. Uh, where, which will basically pick up with the negotiations with Barrows, and we'll see where they go um, from, from this point. There's no agreement yet made, but they're still negotiating maybe what can be the future of our, of our arrangement. What could be the future of these simulacrums? So we'll see where this goes in chapters uh, 10 through 14, a very interesting section of, of the novel, where it starts to switch to being a much more of a personal narrative about uh, Louis and Pris and, and their relationship and Louis's mental health. So as always, thanks for listening. I will um, I'll welcome your responses to this part of the novel if you've read it. Uh, if, you've, if you've never read We Can Build You, um, let me know. Uh, well, I encourage you to check it out and, and glance at it, especially if you're a Philip Dick fan. Um, if you're a casual Philip Dick fan, I don't know if this is the best one to start with, but um, I still think it's interesting. Um, but if you have read this novel, let me know what you think. Give your own thoughts or comments about it. You can uh, leave your leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, so thanks for listening. I'll see you next time with part three of my review of We Can Build You by Philip K. Dick. To feel these changes happening in me.